New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Humankind needs a makeover. One might describe our current identity as being consumers. Is it possible we can move away from being consumers to being redeemers? The challenge of redeeming every facet of civilization, the environment, the economy, government, education, medicine, and religion is overwhelming to contemplate. We might be tempted to turn on the television and zone out rather than feel our despair in the face of such challenges. The bad news is that these challenges aren't going away. The good news is we don't have to do it alone. The very nature of our problems demands global cooperation. Today we'll be exploring how we got into this predicament and how we can move into a sustainable and humane future with our guest, Dr. Anandea Judith. Anandea Judith is a workshop leader and speaker on personal and planetary transformation. She holds a doctorate in health and human services and a master's degree in clinical psychology. She is the author of Wheels of Life, A User's Guide to the Chakra System, and The Global Heart Awakens, Humanity's Rite of Passage from the Love of Power to the Power of Love. Join us for the next hour as we explore the new story and how we can get out of this mess we've created with our guest, Dr. Anandea Judith. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Anandea, welcome. Justine, I'm delighted to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here with me today. Let's start off. This is a very ambitious book. I mean, you take us through the history. You you start off with three questions like, who are we, where do we come from, and where are we going? So you've really addressed all of those questions, I'd like to begin with, um, who, where where have we come from? Why is it important for us to know our history and where we've come from? Well, first of all, there's famous quote that if we don't know our history, we're destined to repeat it. But we are trying to build our way to the future, standing on one leg. And that is a leg that has 
pushed itself against the earth, against women, against everything that happened before. And we actually can't take another step forward until we kind of shore things up. And uh, one of those legs is rational thinking. One of them is mythical thinking. We need both legs to walk forward. So the it's, and it's you could also say a plant has roots. That's the history. The plant can't continue to grow without knowing its roots. And it can't really stand up without knowing, without being rooted in. And so in that, in knowing our history, you look at it in a, the chakra system. The sh- say something about what you know about the chakra systems and why you're using that analogy. Well, the chakra system is something that I've worked with my whole life. It's, you know, one of my main contributions to, you know, modern thinking. And when I wrote Eastern Body, Western Mind, I charted the chakras onto individual childhood development. So the first chakra was our first year of life when we're learning to operate a body and be in the physical world. Then we get our emotions and we start moving and we find our power and we enter relationship, etc. And as I was writing that book, I saw oh, this also maps onto history. That human cultural history has gone through these stages of being in survival, which is first chakra, of learning to farm and procreate and have control of water and building ships, and then coming into the power era, which started about 5,000 years ago, third chakra. And therefore, when I saw that, I said, oh, we are now in the cusp of entering into an era of the heart. And so this book is basically backing up and, you know, trotting out that thesis that the whole culture is moving to a new era that is characterized by an organizing principle based more on the heart than on power. And that's a huge, huge shift. We've been in this this other era of of power and power over and and moving out of that is huge but yeah, we've been there for 5000 5, years, years so it's no right, small thing right. and nor does it happen overnight and nor does it happen without some mess yes yes which we can feel right now <laughs> we, we can feel right now and see all over the world now you also use four other strategies that we've come from and one you call the first one that you tell us about in your book is the uh, static feminine and so let's talk about the four the four strategies and then we'll go into more detail in each one yeah in in addition to mapping history onto the chakras i look at the masculine and feminine valences that shadowed or controlled culture during various times of history. And if we go back to our beginnings, we see that we worshiped a great mother, a goddess. And so that was a feminine. And, you know, just as a child can only go so far from the mother and still survive, we were you know, limited by the seasons, lifespan wasn't very long, we didn't travel very far in a lifetime, we didn't know much about the world. We were infants in the garden and we were centered around Mother Nature. And then as we grew up from our cultural infancy, I say we were born from the primal womb of nature, and then we trotted across the land in our teeming toddlerhood, which meant that we procreated and we spread across the land, we learned to farm, 
Then we had to have a new organizing principle because there were too many people to organize in simple tribes. We now lived in cities of 10 to 50,000, even 100,000. Um, Babylon was 200,000 people. And that's, you know, without any of the technology that we take for granted today. No, people couldn't read and write. They didn't have, you know, machines. They didn't have newspapers or radio or telephones or, or anything. Or just moving food and water in and out of the city was just, my goodness. What? That was a major task. So how did that get coordinated it got coordinated by certain people who had a strong will and perhaps foresight and a talent telling other people what to do. And that makes sense. It's much like parents of young children need to set the rules. They need to say, I'm the boss. You will go to bed when I say so. Because I said so. <laughs> yeah, because I said so, and you will finish your peas. <laughs> so we had, you know, kings and slaves, you know, not everybody was a slave, but we certainly had that kind of stratified society. And this was the beginning of the power era, where we were organized according to power. Someone told someone else what to do, and they told someone else what to do. And if you imagine that we didn't have, you know, photocopiers and fax machines and certainly not computers, what was going to keep the word clear all the way down the line? strict dictatorial rule. And so this, the, the dynamic masculine that overthrew the preceding feminine mother had to be very rigid, had to be very strict, had to be very absolute in its power. So that it, it, it started in dynamic masculine, and then it became... The static masculine, it kind of got engraved in stone, so to speak. I mean, literally. That's correct, I mean, engraved the first... in stone. Once the dynamic masculine seized power from the ancient goddess, and understand that was not easy either because that had been the only religion humans had known. I mean, look at how entrenched Christianity is, and it's only 2,000 years old. So you can imagine how entrenched that was. That was not easy. But once it overthrew the goddess, and much of that was violent and destroying the temple, Temples and um, you know supplanting the priestesses and and all that went with that. Once they seized control and society had moved to that, then there was the institutionalization of that control through law and order. So we now, see this in the Roman Empire, for example. Before we get too far into that, I want to go back to the static feminine. There, there is. You also mentioned the positive and the negative of each of these. I mean, so it's not like, okay, the 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 feminine in the goddess culture, it was all great. It 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 had a downside too. And can you mention it? It did, and that's why we had to evolve out of it. So the positive side of the static feminine is that it's stable and it's nurturing, and we were in this primal garden and there was plenty of food and game, and things were very simple. Just like for an infant, the positive side is Mom provides everything, and the infant doesn't have to do anything. The downside is that he's only an infant, and the infant can't survive unless they're completely in the realm of the mother. And there's, it's, um, you use the uh, symbol of the circle, so it's, it goes round and round, the seasons go round and round, so it's not a terribly creative time. That's why it's called static, 
because it it doesn't change much. It doesn't evolve very much. It's very stable. And you know, even though we're talking about this periods as periods of history, we can see it everywhere. Sometimes women's groups are just so everybody's being so nice to each other, they don't go anywhere, you know? Yes. And we can see the static feminine in the model of the farmer who is just bound to the seasons of reaping and sowing. And there's nothing wrong with that, but they're limited by it. People who publish magazines that have to come out every quarter, they're also limited to these cycles. And so the negative side is that it binds you and doesn't allow much freedom and growth. So it's bound to change because evolution will proceed. So in the dynamic masculine, which was the beginning of this change 5,000 years ago, it was quite creative, I, I, would you say? It was very creative, and it was very aggressive. And if you think of the static feminine as a circle, and that is the, realm, the limits of the mother, the dynamic masculine was an arrow pushing out from the circle. So instead of being cyclic, it was linear. Instead of being contained, it was limitless. And if you put that arrow next to the circle, you get the symbol for male. That's right. That's and right. Mars, the planet and, Mars. And the planet Mars. And that's, that's a planet of, of war and power. And we think of all of those things with that. I'm here with Anandaya Judith. She's the author of The Global Heart Awakens, Humanity's Rite of Passage from the Love of Power to the power of love. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, which is sacredcenters.com, sacredcenters.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. And I want to spell her name, Anadea Judith, A-N-O-D-E-A, Judith, J-U-D-I-T-H, Anadea Judith. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Anodea Judith. She's the author of The Global Heart Awakens, Humanity's Rite of Passage, From the Love of Power to the Power of Love. Anodea, we're talking about history and where we've come from. So we've come through the static feminine. We've entered the dynamic masculine. Then now we're we're right in the middle of maybe the static 
masculine. Can you say something about that? Where are we? Well, I would say we're actually coming toward the end of the static masculine, and we've been in that for the last 2,000 or 2,500 years. So once the dynamic masculine seizes power, its next job is to keep that power by institutionalizing it through law and order. That way we didn't need quite as much violence from authority. We didn't need slave owners to crack the whip over your head. We had a law, and if we didn't follow the law, and that, you know, then, then we would be punished. But that could be internalized in order to allow a society to start to conform and get along with each other. And a great place that this happened was in the Roman Empire, where you had, you know, millions of people from different cultures and languages coming together at a time again when we didn't have the technology we have. How are they going to get along? One of the talents the Romans had is they had a talent for law. They had a talent for finding these agreements that would allow people to cooperate and enforcing those with brutal power if necessary. So after a while, that became institutionalized. The thing we have to remember about the static masculine is that it came out of the dynamic masculine, which is a complete overthrow of the feminine. So it was completely devoid of the feminine. But because it was so institutionalized, we took it for granted. You know, when I grew up, I never heard of a goddess. (laughs) I never heard a female announcer on the radio. In all of my childhood, right? you know, to people today, that may seem incredible, but a voice like yours on the radio did not happen. I took it for granted. I took it for granted that God was called he when my family went to church. So it became so institutionalized, we forgot about it. And we've been in this, and, and, you know, the advantage of the static masculine is law and order does enable people to get along. We do need laws. We do need agreements. It does bring a stability because the dynamic masculine, it was a lot of chaos that happened, a lot of violence, a lot of domination, a lot of war. And, you know, the Romans were able to have the Pax Romana, which, you know, kept peace, at least inside the Roman Empire, if not at the borders, for quite a long time by this. So the advantage is it enables people to get along. It stabilizes. If you apply it to education, it's the ability to make distinctions and to categorize all the plants and animals and remember them. And, you know, the bureaucracy is very much the static masculine and it gets things done. The negative side is that, first of all, it's devoid of the feminine. And it is so static and rigid that life, which is dynamic and changing, is smothered by it. So there were a couple of times where there was light coming in. The Renaissance was one time, which is a surprisingly small um, time time period. It's really very surprising. So that was like a, a little glimmer of of hope. And then it took us back into that other static place. Yeah, I call the Renaissance a break in the clouds. You know, that when you're in dark clouds and the sun breaks through for a little bit and you get a glimpse of what's possible, the Renaissance was suddenly filled with color, with music, with art and creativity. The feminine was more honored. They started writing love poetry and romance novels. Um, So there was this flowering of the feminine. But, you know, sort of like the 60s, it was quickly shut down. 
Right. And I, I like what you, you say at some point. It's like, because there was that separation of the feminine from the masculine, we are children of a broken home. That's right. <laughs> you know? yeah. And yeah. Can you describe Raised that? by a single father with no knowledge of the mother. You know, and, and you asked me earlier, why is it important to know our history? I speak as a psychologist that did therapy for many years. And when a client comes in in crisis, which I think our planet and our civilization is in crisis, we not only have to mitigate the crisis, we have to find the roots of it. Otherwise, you go and create crisis again. You right. know? And so we have to get down to the roots. If our civilization were a human, it would be an adolescent white male and it would be in crisis, and it wouldn't know that it ever had a mother. Any psychologist would say, if you didn't have a mother, there's a wound to begin with. Right. There, there also, there's hope in a story that Elizabeth Satoris tells. Well, she talks about the butterfly and the caterpillar, mm -hmm. but before that, she, she really describes very accurately this crisis that happened long before humankind even came on the planet. And this is hope for the future because we're in huge crisis right now. But there was another time on the planet. It was the crisis of oxygen and bacteria. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that crisis and how it was mitigated. Well, we had um, photosynthesis. Photosynthesis had been developed through evolution. Photosynthesis, as we know, produces oxygen, right? Takes in carbon, produces oxygen. And because we didn't have animals that breathed in oxygen and breathed out carbon, the oxygen was, you know, just increasing on the planet to the point where it was becoming a crisis. Oxygen, if there's too much of it, it burns. It's like an acid. It dissolves things. It, that's why we have rust. It's an oxygenation. And it also makes things very flammable. So we were quickly getting to a place that would have been inhospitable for our kind of life. And so... You know, this was just on a micro level that this was happening. And so uh, oxygen-breathing microbes were created or emerged or evolved that took in the oxygen and balanced it out. And that eventually became the animal kingdom and on through evolution, us. It's an amazing story because these, these microbes, w which were single-cell individuals, so to speak, were just kind of going along and then they had to figure out another strategy. That's and right. that strategy was cooperation, and they became multi-celled organisms. Well, that's the point we're at in civilization right now. From the first appearance of life, which they say is 3.8 billion years ago, for about 3 billion years, approximately, we had nothing but single cells. They were just replicating and spreading across the planet. And then when they started to put themselves together, it only took 10 million years, which compared to 3 billion is a very short time geologically, to create the first multicelled creatures. And within less than a billion years, you've got humans using portable cell phones with their opposable thumbs. It's quite an amazing feat. And, and also... What does this also have to do with 
the whole butterfly caterpillar story, because we we're kind of right in the middle of that, too. Yeah, well, if we look at this individual and putting ourselves together, we've been so into our ego and who am I and how do I forward my own agenda and make my own money and get my sign bigger than everybody else on the street if I have a store or whatever. And you just walk down the street and you see the cry of individualism all over saying, look at me. What could we create if we put ourselves together? That's what the single cells did. And so we actually are creating a new body politic, if you want to call it that. And that is the, the butterfly that is emerging from the imaginal cells, as Elizabeth Satoris called it, of the dying caterpillar. So when the caterpillar, and first of all, you know, the caterpillar consumes everything in sight. That's what it does. It's a larval creature. That's its job. And so, as you mentioned at the beginning, we're called consumers. That's what the news calls us. Is that what I am? Is that what my soul is? I'm just here to consume? And we're addictively consuming the planet. So when and we that's cons- what the caterpillar does. I mean, that's what the caterpillar it, it, does. His his little his her place on the planet is just they're eating up the leaves. I mean, they're stripping the they trees. They can eat a whole just, tree in your backyard. Yeah. they consume twenty seven thousand times their own weight. That's amazing. Yeah, and their skin bursts several times, and then they get so. They just can't move anymore. That's when the chrysalis forms. And we're getting to this point in culture as we've got traffic jams, for instance. We have gridlock in our politics. We have gridlock on our highways. We have, you know, everything is just kind of getting slow and stuck. You stand in line everywhere. You wait on the phone. You know, we're kind of approaching the chrysalis stage. The chrysalis comes around and, in a sense, curtails its freedom. It can't consume anymore. Inside, the transformation takes place. Tiny cells that, ima- that biologists actually call imaginal cells begin to appear spontaneously. And they're so different from the caterpillar cells that they're attacked. Now, that's another parallel. We know that new ideas are always attacked at first. Whether it's ideas in science, like tectonic plates, or you know, ideas in medicine, or the Earth uh, moving around the sun, yeah, or the Earth Earth being round, or the Earth being round. That's right. Or that there is evolution, (laughs) (laughs) and that it's a natural process that is much older than four thousand years. So these ideas are met by the powers that be, and they're attacked as if the caterpillar's immune system. The interesting thing is they appear anyway, and they keep appearing in greater and greater numbers, as we have seen over the last few decades. And as they do, they recognize each other. The way you and I recognize each other right now is doing common work and having some common vision. And when they do that, they want to be around each other. We want to go to conferences where people are talking about the same alternative healing techniques that we're into or the same political ideas. And so as they do, they organize. And this creates a new organizational structure, which is the structure of the butterfly. Now, the interesting thing is as the butterfly is getting ready to emerge, the chrysalis becomes transparent. 
So what's happening with the internet today? We've got WikiLeaks. We've got the government spying on us. We've got emails that say, find out anything about anybody. <laughs> so everything is starting to become transparent. There's no secrets anymore. It's much harder to keep them. That means the butterfly is getting ready to emerge. And when it does, it spreads its right wing and its left wing. Oh, but it's organized through the center. Right. And it, in doing that, I, I love the idea. It actually liquefies before it starts to form into the butterfly. I, I just and, and you also mentioned, I hadn't thought of this before, how, how it fills its wings with that fluid. With that, that liquid, that liquid, nutritious that soup. Soup. Yeah. Fills up the wings. And so we don't need to prop up the caterpillar. Right. I'm here with Anadea Judith, and she's the author of The Global Heart Awakens Humanity's Rite of Passage from the Love of Power to the Power of Love. And if you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website, sacredcenters.com. Centers is C E N T E R S sacredcenters.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Anodea Judith, and we're talking about awakening the global heart and getting out of this mess that we're in right now, politically, uh, economically, in all ways. Um, and we're talking about the different modes, and we're entering, you said earlier that we're entering the dynamic feminine now, that, that we're, we're on the cusp of this. So say something about the dynamic feminine. So the dynamic feminine is the fourth uh, aspect of this static and masculine dynamic and feminine, uh, static and dynamic masculine and feminine. So it completes it. So it's not that we are going to be ruled by women necessarily, but that now we can have all four of these dynamics working in wholeness. So the dynamic feminine is seen as a spiral, whereas the static masculine is a cross. The cross separates heaven from earth, right from left, masculine from feminine, mind from body, rational from mythic. It makes separations. The dynamic feminine starts at the heart of the cross and spirals out and breaks down those separations and brings a circularity again. But rather than the limitation of the circle that is bound, it's a spiral. It can keep on going. And so the dynamic feminine is seen in nonlinear dynamics in science. It's seen in spiral dynamics, which is an evolutionary system that was created by Don Beck and, and, um, and Graves. Um, it is 
seen in a return to emotions and, you know, creativity. It's seen in a reclamation of sexuality and freedom. It's seen in, it's, it's like a new renaissance in a sense. And it's seen in, in what you might call the green movement of equality for various, you know, subgroups and that we all get to have a part of this and look at ecology. It's a returning to wholeness again from the separations of the static masculine. So in that returning to wholeness is it's it's not as easy to progress together though. I mean it, it's it, life is much easier when it's dictated to us. That's right. Uh, I mean I'm saying easier in so far as we get to move forward because somebody's telling us how to do it. But if we're going to as those imaginal cells come together and we clump together it's it's called clumping um we don't always agree on exactly how to proceed and how we're going to do it and who's going to get to do what and when and all of that so say something about how difficult this time can also be yes and we need to be careful not to judge it as a system that doesn't work just because it's young we are evolving new systems, and I think, you know, one example is when people try to live in community from the nuclear family. There are things they discover that are diffic difficult to manage, and when we have worker-owned organizations, well, who's the boss, and how do they have decide what, what, what way to go? We look at this in the Arab Spring. We see all this uprising and the overthrow of the old power dynamic, and yet those who are overthrowing it don't quite know how to govern themselves, and so they have a lot of chaos. I think we have to move through the chaos and find a new organizing principle. And that's the way I talk about this movement to the heart, not just the sentiment of love, which of course is universal and wonderful and divine and, and everything, but not just that sentimental thing, but actually an organizing principle where we continually choose for what we love, for what is most optimal. And that is partly feeling our way because we reclaim the emotions. And so in the dynamic feminine, you see people, oh, this doesn't feel right. Let's kind of feel for a different way. And as they do, something emerges in the group that they can all get behind. So the process is really important. It is. More than more than focusing on the the product of it. That that way if the process is right and and you stick with it long enough, then the product will come out maybe the best. Exactly. There's even fancy words for it. You know, homeostasis is arguing around a point or a fact you know, and it's sort of like what our government is doing right now. Are we going to raise the debt ceiling or not? Um, and homeoresis is another name. It's fluctuating around a process. You know, in this, right now we're going through a government shutdown. I don't know when this will play, but no one's asking, what about this? Pro how are we doing this process? What a ridiculous process we're using to run the country. We're only deciding who's going to rule, who's going to give way. That's the old dynamic, masculine, fighting, struggle, third chakra, if you will. And we have to say, what's the process by which we decide things? 
the process is outdated. We need to evolve a new process. We need to evolve an or, a new organizing principle. And that takes a vision of where we're going. So this is about the new story then, the vision. Uh, in what, what positive visions are you seeing that's going, that can take us into sustainability or into hu- humane ways of being? Well, the shortest way I have to say it is that collectively we are here to create heaven on earth. That is the task of humanity to evolve, to become as gods, essentially. In fact, I say evolution is the god's way of making more gods, that we have been evolving from our infancy toward more and more power, more and more knowledge, more and more capability, more and more creativity. And what do we do with that? We've gone through the power era so that the average person today has more power than they have at any time in human history. The power to print and and organize and go where we want and say what we want and dress how we want. We don't realize how much freedom we have compared to the way people used to be. The question now is, what do we do with that power? What did we go through all that for to get that power, to just, you know, spend it watching TV and flipping through the channels and, you know, becoming addicted to things? Or did we come to that power to co-create something together? So my vision is what would be heaven on earth? How can we mimic the gods, if you will, and take that power and, and actually use it? And when I say we select for power, that's already happening in a way that it didn't used to. We grow up and we get to choose our mates for the most part. They're not assigned. You know, some countries they still are, but, you know, we kind of take it for granted. Oh, I'll get to choose who I fall in love with, not somebody my parents picked out. We get to choose our profession, by and large. You don't have to go into your father's business. You go to college, if you do, and you say, I'm going to choose what I want to study. So we're actually selecting for love, in a sense. We're selecting for, oh, what will... what will. Make my heart happy. What will evolve me? When you when you talk about heaven on earth, it's coming back to the original possible uh, Jesus story mm-hmm. that got corrupted. Please say something That's about right. that. That's right. You know, when Jesus came in, we have to see him in the context of his time. He was a radical. He was a radical thinker. And when he said the kingdom of heaven is on earth, and first of all, kingdoms, that's just what they had. They were areas ruled by a king. That's all people knew. So that was the kingdom. When he said the kingdom of heaven is coming to earth, he was actually talking about bringing the divine down through. He was an avatar of the heart. But his message, he only had three years to preach, you know, his message was then taken by the Roman Empire as a way to unite the empire, and it was institutionalized in the static masculine. Jesus was not really a static masculine teacher. He was a uniter. He said, you know, let's unite the very, let's break bread together, the various tribes. He cut across, you know, party lines and, and socioeconomic lines. And, you know, he hung out with prostitutes and he kissed the hem of beggars or they kissed his hem. And, you know, I mean, he cut across all that. So it was a new social ideal that was very radical at the time. And so radical, it got him killed. Yes. And going going back to to in 
we've now developed democracy or a form of it. And in talking about democracy, you also tell us and remind us that we need to participate. Absolutely. There are a lot of people who are saying, oh, it's it's hopeless. And they're they're saying, I'm I'm just not gonna I'm not gonna vote, I'm not gonna participate, I'm not gonna be part of this. It's just hopeless. What would you have to say to these people? Democracy is what we make it. And we need to take it into our own hands and use the system we have. The trouble is the system we have is based on, you know, the third chakra power dynamic assumptions. And it is a broken system. But a people's democracy is becoming more available as we have more ways to vote. We vote with our money. We vote on Facebook every time we hit like. <laughs> we vote in our blogs. We vote with our bumper stickers. And we can vote our members into Congress because we do find out about who they are and what they believe. And if we really turn out, I think that the will of the people will be more reflected. You also mentioned something about the Internet, and we were talking earlier about things being transparent. And so we can find out about anybody, anything. We can just say at a flick of a finger. And you were, you were saying the Internet was like the neocortex of the planet. What does that mean? Well, we all have three brains. We have our reptilian brain, which is basically... You know, am I going to live or die? Um, you know, sometimes they say, should I eat it or make love to it? You know, that's the reptilian <laughs> brain. Then when we had mammals, we had the mammalian brain, which is our limbic system. That's our emotional feel-good, you know, bonding with the mother when you're born. That's part of the limbic system. It's our whole emotional makeup. And, you know, most animals don't have beyond that, but humans have a neocortex, which is a thinking, calculating, strategic, um, well, we know it's the realm of a higher consciousness. So we can see that the planet is evolving this group mind, essentially, through the internet. And we are learning to have it. And if you look at, you know, Twitter and Facebook and all, it's sort of like the babbling of an infant. <laughs> it hasn't quite learned to, you know, and there's, there's intelligent things on the web. There's very intelligent things. There's amazing things. I mean, Wikipedia, for example, that just has all of human knowledge at our fingertips. Who doesn't use that on a daily basis? Exactly. Um, so we are programming just the way a child is learning about the world and they're programming their intelligence and their brain. Well, Gaia is now evolving a cerebral cortex as a thinking organism. It's a level that has never been there before. I'm here with Anodea Judith, and she's the author of The Global Heart Awakens, Humanity's Rite of Passage from the Love of Power to the Power of Love. And if you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website, which is sacredcenters.com, sacredcenters, C-E-N-T-E-R-S.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Anadea Judith, and she's the author of The Global Heart Awakens. Anadea, we... uh, you have also reminded us that nothing really gives way. The old system doesn't really quite give way till the new system is a little more together. But we're getting there. We're, say something about some of the ways that we're getting there. Let's say the Occupy movement was one, one indication, and, and there are others. Can you mention some of them? Well, Arab Spring, for example, is overthrowing the old order, and it's not mature enough. But as the imaginal cells organize and they find their ways, the Internet is getting wired up at lightning speed um, geologically, you know, if we consider (laughs) the thrust of history. Um, Facebook is now the third largest country on the planet. (laughs) Amazing. And so something is getting wired up for instant transmission. You know, when something happens, like, you know, Princess Diana dies or 9-11 happens or some major thing, virtually the whole world knows about it. Even people in a non-technological society get word of it within a few days. It's immediate. It's immediate, practically. And it's focusing attention in a way that has never been done before. So just as we are approaching a crisis point, literally almost driving right over the cliff, There is a mechanism that is forming that allows us to transmit information instantaneously to a huge number of people. And it's not hierarchical. It's It's not. It's it's another way of clumping together. Yeah, I say we're moving from a chain of command to a web of connection. And the chain of command is like a rope where everybody has to conform and be part of the rope. And when you have 7 billion people, that becomes unwieldy. But all those strands can become a net, and it can cover the whole globe with each one having its own individual unique contribution, and each one being important as the others. You mentioned something, uh, a book that I was not familiar with, but it it is a um, Wikinomics Yes, that, that uh, Wikinomics, yeah, Wikinomics. Uh, Don Tapscott and Anthony Williams put together how mass collaboration changes everything. Uh, I was heartened by that, and heartened by something that was mentioned in this book called Idegoria. Idegora. Idegora. And what is that? Well, you know, in the past... Just as like an the, example of something that's Yeah. Emerging. You know, in the Greek Empire, the Agora was the city square where people could gather and they could debate ideas. And that's part of what gave Greece its burst into intellectual consciousness because people had a place to debate ideas. Now the internet is like an Agora, only it's not in location. It's an idea Agora. It's a place where people can congregate and share ideas. And the more we share ideas about what's going on, I love what Barbara Marks Hubbard does. She, she tried to set up a peace room where people could submit ideas of what's working. Why aren't we studying what's working instead of what's not working? You know, and we have this potential now to collaborate via the Internet with ideas from across the globe. Someone in a corporation can find some mad scientist in China who's been working on just the very solution they're looking for. They never would have found them before, and now they can, and corporations are saving billions of dollars in research. Exactly, and, and so we're, we're needing to find new jobs 
new architects, new uh, designers. Say something about that. Well, I think, you know, there is a new job as fourth chakra, I call them cohorts or love-powered evolutionaries, that, you know, we've had people that were just there to survive and to provide food for and structure for people's survival. And then we have people that were just there to create pleasure. Oh, I'm going to open a resort luxury hotel and I'm going to sell chocolate or whatever, you know, and then and booze. And, and then we had the people that were really into power. I'm going to do something with power and power has been used for good or ill. Now we have people that are being called to service. Where can I serve? This is the healers and the teachers and the activists and the volunteers and um, the people saying, how can I serve this evolutionary transformation? You you mentioned, you give some pages to the economy, and you mentioned how we are moving from an extractive economy to a a, um, generative economy. And so we need new jobs for that. We need new jobs for that. And as we do green technologies, that's a more generative economy. I mean, every farmer knows that you create an abundant crop by putting a lot into the earth. So the more we put into it, the more we're going to get out. You know, the extractive economy is saying, let's take oil out of the ground. Let's take the trees out of the forest. Let's take the fish out of the seas. Let's take, you know, the nutrients up out of the topsoil. And that is not sustainable because we're not, the warehouse of the earth is not being replenished as we take things. And it's not on the balance sheets. But a generative economy creates an abundance because it generates It generates jobs, it generates possibilities, it generates information, it generates freedom, it is creating more. And, you know, when I talk about a rite of passage, we're moving from our adolescence to our adulthood. An adolescent has been provided for by mom and dad or whatever configuration his or her whole life, and as an adult needs to learn to provide for themselves. So we're at this point in civilization, we've taken it from the Mother Earth. Oh, it's just going to be there forever. Oh, yeah, there's more fish, there's more forests. And now we say, oh, wait a minute, we have to make this happen on our own. We have to generate it. And that is a new economic model that will create an abundance. You know, and also I I can see where we have gone forward in a way of just sort of emptying out the cupboard. (laughs) We've kind of pulled everything out of the cupboard, and now that cupboard of Mother Nature is bare. And do you have hope for the future? I do. I have extreme hope for the future. I feel like we are on the verge of a miraculous awakening. And I think that the short term is going to be very difficult. And I liken it to a woman giving birth, that if a woman were in the throes of birth and she had never seen anybody be pregnant, didn't know how these things happen, she would think she's going to die. And if you said, oh, no, you're going to bring a seven-pound baby out from between your legs, she would hope she's going to die. (laughs) She would say, that is impossible. And yet we know it happens all the time. 
The difficulties we're having and will continue to have are like contractions in the birth process. We have oil shortages, that's a contraction. We have a recession, that's a contraction. We have a tropical storm, that's a contraction in a certain area. And every time they happen, there's a reorganization that occurs. Every time gas prices go up, people drive less, they carpool more, they create alternative transportation systems. So this is the opening that happens as a part of the contraction. These contractions are going to get closer and closer together, and they are going to become more intense. And that part's not going to be fun. But you're saying not to to go into contraction ourselves, but to open our hearts. That's Absolutely. that's one of your main premise to open our hearts. And um, you also talk about how you mentioned heart math, and they have a um, program that they're doing called Global Coherence Initiative. And what is that about? What? Well, HeartMath did re- does tons of research, and they discovered that when the heart enters a state of resonance with the mind, with the breath, with the body, that we think clearer, we feel better, our health is better, and that it's, there's a simple process for entering into that resonance. But because the heart has a field, an electromagnetic field around the body, when I'm in resonance and you're in resonance, our fields are touching each other and there's a resonance that occurs between us. So they have been trying to get that resonance to in, include larger and larger numbers of people as a way of bringing about more harmony, more peace, more effective intelligence, more cooperation. All of these things are values of the heart, actually. And they've done some research where if if people are doing this in a certain area, that incidents of crime go down. I mean, it's just an amazing statistic. Yeah, and it's just a very simple technique of thinking about a time when you felt loved or happy or at one with yourself and just breathing that in. Just imagine you're breathing in and out through your heart and just magnifying that and soaking your cells in that feeling. That's enough to do it. It's so simple. It's so simple. It's so simple. And is that what the news is doing for us? (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. So it's really, the news is traumatizing and magnifying the shadow, really. And that's why I think that the rebirth is going to be so miraculous. People hardly see it coming because it's underreported. But it's everywhere. That's a good point, that it's it's a groundswell, and we're we're not seeing it, but we can look for it. We can. We can. We. It's we there. We can look for we it. We can yeah. look for it, and yeah. we can participate in it with one another. You know, Paul Hawken talks about in his book Blessed Unrest, the largest movement on the planet today is people moving voluntarily into non-governmental organizations to address the things our governments are failing to do. Peace, environmental sustainability, social justice, economic balance, the study of consciousness, the preservation of democracy. These things are not happening through the top-down power structure. They're happening through the will of the people, not because anybody's telling them to do that, not because anybody's forcing, and certainly not because they're getting well-paid. Anadea, thank you so much for being with us today with your positive message. Thank you so much. 
I've been speaking with Dr. Anodea Judith. She's the author of The Global Heart Awakens, Humanity's Rite of Passage from the Love of Power to the Power of Love. And if you'd like to know more about her work, go to sacredcenters.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3485. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.